It's time for the show that scours the globe for news that interests you. We've scoured a few other planets, too. Didn't find much. Coming to you almost live from their command center just beneath the Earth's crust, here's Jeremy Bray and Wesley Faulkner with Global Geek News. Hey everybody, as I'm sure you noticed by the intro, you are listening to the Global Geek News Podcast. As always, I am your host, Jeremy Bray, alongside my co-host, Wesley Faulkner. How's it going, Wesley? Things are awesome. It's springtime here in, I guess, North America. (laughs) Yeah, if only I got to have spring break, it would be much, much better. Yeah, I saw the earlier post that you're prepping for finals, right? Yeah, I got finals next week, so I I've got all but one of my homework assignments for this week done. That's due this week, so hopefully I can get the other assignment done maybe tomorrow or something like that, and I can spend the rest of the week studying for finals or making a Windows Phone app or something. But Windows I, I, Phone? Are, are you abandoning Android, or or is it yeah. per uh, your new employer? <laughs> Yes, I've I'm giving up on Android completely after they kind of screwed me with, over with the whole chargeback deal. I'm, I'm, did I tell you about that? No, you didn't. Oh, I'm sure I probably forgot to tell everybody on the show. Then I know I know I tweeted that I was going to, but until I forgot about it. But a couple of weeks ago, I just happened to get an I believe it was an email that I got from Google as far as they said that someone apparently did a chargeback on their credit card or whatever for the 99 cents that my app is. Apparently they told their bank or credit card company or whatever that they didn't remember ever purchasing the app or what have you, which all they had to say was, hey, I'd like a refund, and I would have been more than happy to give them a refund or whatever. But, oh, no. Instead, they decided to do a chargeback, so I ended up, having to not only pay back my um, what I made off of the app, which ends up being like $0.69 cents or $0.70 cents or, no, $0.69 cents or right about there. Uh, as I, If I remember right, I ended up having to pay the, back the 30% share that Google gets, as well as I had to pay a $3.99 chargeback fee. Because apparently, if unless your app is... More than $10, they won't fight for you in terms of chargebacks. They'll just stick you with the fee, and that's it as far as they're concerned. Wow. So So, they make money either way. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So after I kind of got screwed out of that deal, I realized, gee, if this happens again, or much more, I'll I'll have lost money on the app, which it wasn't too long ago that I barely broke even after paying the developer fees and stuff like that. So I figured, okay, enough of it. I pulled the app from the store and I have and I will no longer have anything to do with the Android app marketplace. Well, did you by any chance inquire on the Microsoft side on how they handle chargebacks? Uh not yet. I haven't gotten around to that quite yet. As far as the Windows seven or the Windows Phone seven series, which is what I'm, I've got a couple of ideas for apps for. They are not, they haven't announced a lot of their business stuff like that just yet. From what I hear, they're supposed to be doing that in May or sometime around then. For that's when they're supposed to be announcing more of their business details, and I think that's when they're supposed to come out with like the developer agreement for you're allowed to have these kind of apps, but not these kind of apps, kind of a thing. Well, I know that. Either way, I mean, you probably have less chargebacks in general because I think every app you have like three days or so to return it. Yeah, I know with Android it was 24 hours. I'm not sure about the iPhone. I think it might be the case as well, and I'm not sure about uh, the whole Windows Mobile or Windows Phone 7 series. I, I know, I know there is. I just don't know the time period. There's definitely a, a time where you can return it for for a full refund. Yeah. And well, uh, what Microsoft does is they don't give you the money when when mm-hmm. a customer purchases an app they hold it for that 
period of time. Yeah, that, that, that's what Google does as well. That is, they hold it for the 24 hours that where the um, purchaser can request a re- refund, and then I get them get access to the money. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure quite how that's going to work on the Windows Phone 7 series marketplace. I'm kind of interested to find that out now that I think about it. All right. All right. Well, on to the show. Yeah. um, For those that want to follow along, there are plenty of show notes at globalgeeknews.com. And don't forget to check out the blog at globalgeeknews.com slash blog. Over the last week, I've been working on getting up all the, or at least some of the posts, in regards to my trip to Washington for my Microsoft Student Insider training stuff. Uh, I got all of day one at Microsoft posted last week, and this week, as soon as I get the posts broken up and scheduled, will be all of the day two stuff, which includes my appearance on 1 vs. 100 Live, how I met Chris Cashman, the guy who now does the show's intro, and a number of other things, shopping spree at the Microsoft Store, that kind of stuff. So don't forget to check that out at globalgeeknews.com slash blog. And we might as well go ahead and get right in with the story that pisses me off the most. There's going to be no more Linux on the PlayStation 3. Yes, uh, apparently um, the PlayStation 3, is, as it's known, has gone through several iterations. And um, now they've, they've removed, uh, when it initially was released, uh, Rumble. And this iteration after that, they removed backwards compatibility. And uh, with the advent of the Slim model, um, it, they've released more functions and features. And now they're even taking away features from the original PlayStation 3, uh, which is you can't run other operating systems, i.e. Linux. Yeah, this is like the only console where, they're at, where over time they take away features instead of add them. And this... I'm still irritated about this. I was quite livid last night when I saw the news come across my Google Reader. Um, Apparently, and I am one of these people, you can install Linux on your PlayStation 3. I think most people usually install Yellow Dog Linux, I believe is what it is. I know that's what I have installed on mine. But for all the fat PS3s, all the basically everything before the PS3 Slim, you were allowed to put your own additional operating system on there, generally speaking Linux, I don't think Windows or Mac or anything else works on it but basically you can put Linux on it, you can have a full desktop OS, you can play ROMs on it, you can have a full featured web browser and do pretty much you can anything you can with a normal PC there, there were some performance issues here and there depending on the kind of mice you used, keyboard stuff like that, but for them to basically say okay, First, we started off saying, you don't need so many USB ports, so we took all those out after the 60-gigabyte PS3. You don't need the all the memory card ports, so they took those out after the 60-gigabyte PS3. Then they said, okay, you don't need hardware emulation for the PS2, so they took that out, left software emulation in. Then they said, uh-oh, nope, you don't need that either. So they took out the software emulation, which is what I have on mine, or they stopped doing new ones with software emulation. They haven't taken it out of the old ones. Um, and now they're saying, okay, now no Linux, even on the old ones. And that kind of really irritates me. With with this update, it's not a mandatory update. Right. So bas- basically, you can choose not to update it, but if you do, then you won't have any access to the PlayStation Network, so you won't be able to do like games online. You won't be able to buy TV shows or movies from the PlayStation Network or game demos or whatever. So and it pretty even, much cripples even, the device. Even Blu-ray movies will be restricted if it requires a network component. Yeah, so basically any BD Live content, you can forget about it. I I don't know. I, I'm i really torn. It's like, I want to... I, ha, I haven't booted into the Linux in like a year, but the fact that it's being taken away from me really irritates me. So I don't know... Do I want to keep this PS3 and not update it? Do I want to update it? Or do I want to keep this PS3, not update it, and buy a second PS3, a slim PS3, which is better with power usage and everything else anyway, and that way I can have 
one of each like I did with the PSP. And the reason why they're pushing this is they are citing that it's a security concern, um, and they want to make sure that all their users are secure, so thus they're removing this capability going forward. Yeah, and when Sony mentions security issues, that means that supposedly someone's found a way of how to hack the console to be able to run um, pirated games. That, that's basically been all their security issues with the PSP, so I have no doubt that that's what the issue is here, although I'm still looking for evidence of that. Yeah, um, the, if, if hackers do um, have an issue with this, of course... Uh, they could always sniff the traffic, figure out what the handshake is, and make sure that the version that's reported is one that's greater than 3.21, which is um, easy for someone to do. Um, so thus, that would not alleviate the security concerns. Um, so it, yeah. it all depends on, on what, what if they could elaborate more on the security concerns, maybe we would have more sympathy to understand why they have to go through this dramatic approach to uh, make sure they lock down their network. But uh, without more information, it just seems like they're just taking it away and just using a blanket excuse to do that. Yeah, and that's exactly what they've always done with the PSP. It's just, oh, it's a security issue. You don't need to know about it. It's just that there's a security issue. You don't like it too bad. Yeah, And and that's one of the things that has kind of always kept me going towards the homebrew scene on the PSP is the people on the homebrew, I actually trust them because they're somewhat open and honest compared to Sony, which is extremely secretive and wants to kind of screw their users. Yeah, if I had a guess, I would say it's more of a revenue issue. Um, Of course, we all know that there's a loss on every uh, PS3 sold um, that that they try to make it up with game sales. And with the popularity growing of the cell processor as a supercomputer platform, uh, I think they're trying to effectively uh, kill the market for aftermarket PS3 sales for use in in, uh, in supercomputer clusters or anything like that. Yeah, I know the 60 gigabyte PS3s, even on eBay, still fetch around the price that the PS3 originally sold for when it came out, because those are considered to be the rare ones, those have the hardware emulation for PS2 and stuff, so it's probably stuff. I know there's been a number of, like, uh, I believe it's DARPA that's used clusters of PS3s to come up with all kinds of, uh, I don't remember, like the hacked encryption or something like that, but they, they can do some pretty impressive stuff if you really use them for what you can. Yeah. I think they're just trying to squelch the aftermarket and uh, secondhand market. Yeah, and apparently they're not the only one. Apparently, GameStop, a company that I um, stopped buying games from a while ago, as much despite the fact that I really enjoy the company of the guys that work there, um, apparently they're being sued over one-time use codes and deceptive advertising because. For a lot of games, um, especially when you pre-order games, they'll say, oh, hey, if you pre-order the game, you'll get X number of extra maps or extra character skins or whatever, but it's a one-time-use code so that if you go and try to resell it, the next person, the person who buys it from you or whatever won't be able to get access to those unless they pay like 15 bucks or whatever to get the one another one-time-use code which by that point, they could have just bought a whole new game and saved a little bit of money. Yeah, this is the same thing that happens when you go to eBay. When you buy, let's say, a cell phone, um, if it's, if you have to check to see if it comes with the battery, if it comes with the battery case, if it comes with a, a holster, if it comes with a screen protector, you, all the stuff that comes packaged with it originally, uh, there's no guarantee that when you buy it secondhand that you'll get all of those, uh, even the like manuals, that comes with it uh, when you get it secondhand. But the problem with an establishment like GameStop, who makes makes a, a generous portion of their revenue through this model, they need to do their di- due diligence to make sure that people know um, what they're getting. And uh, Because it's if you read the box and it says it has all the stuff, they are responsible for making sure it has it, or to 
uh, let people know that it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing is, what kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me is the fact that the majority of GameStop revenues come from used game sales because they have a much higher margin on those than they do new games. So you'd think you'd want to um, just throw that stuff in there or whatever and give people what they're actually paying for. If Because whenever I go into GameStop and I look at the used games, they're only like five bucks cheaper than a new game, so I always just spring for the new game. That way I don't have to worry about scratched up discs or anything. Right. But some people just need to save an extra buck here and there. And um, also, it might be just a small little nudge to say, hey, it's that it's just a little bit cheaper, but it's the same game regardless. Um, and But may not know that they're losing out, or they could possibly be losing out on some of this online content, too. Yeah, and for those that are looking to save money on games, check out a site called gogamer.com. They sell all, all kinds of video games. PC games, Xbox 360, PS3, accessories, you name it. They're pretty much like a GameStop, but online. And with them, if you sign up for their newsletter, you always get sent these emails, I don't know, once or twice a week or whatever, for their 48-hour sales, where even on brand new titles, a lot of times they'll be marked down like 10 bucks or whatever. And of course... With them, depending on what state you're in, you don't have to worry about sales tax and stuff and whatever. So it ends up being a whole lot cheaper to buy through them. But if you're anything like me, if you can buy it on Steam, you buy it on Steam. Just because then you don't have to worry about any discs or fuss or anything like that. Right. But anyway, speaking of things that can go online and be used for things they probably (laughs) shouldn't be able to... Apparently, Warner Brothers is recruiting students, or at least in the Warner Brothers UK, is recruiting students to spy on pirates. Yes, what they're doing is they're trying to find tech-savvy college kids to intern for them for a year. um, And to monitor networks, even issue takedown notices, uh, come up with uh, reports on data usage of of where they find materials and um, basically become experts into finding copyrighted material on behalf of Warner Brothers and uh, NBC Universal, and uh, and from the rate that they're paying these students, this seems very cost effective for Warner Brothers too. Yeah, they're only paying them the equivalent of twenty-two grand for the. 12 months of being an intern or whatever. And you're basically going around to IRC rooms, forums, anywhere you can find links to pirated content, um, pirate groups, pirate activities, whether you'll be sent to um, private torrent sites, all kinds of stuff, and basically reporting back any information you can find about like the sites, who runs the sites, stuff like that. And what kind of I find to be a little bit funny is the fact that Torrent Freak, the source of this news, and pretty much and the vast majority of any peer-to-peer related news that we report on, they're actually encouraging people to apply for this so that we can all know what Warner Brothers' anti-piracy efforts really are. Right, and for those listening to the podcast, the deadline is March 31st if you're interested in this. Uh, yeah. But they wa- they basically want a mole on the inside to say, hey, let us know what's going on. Yeah, and apparently you have to be studying in a degree of computer-related discipline and pro- with programming experience in Java or JSP and PHP, and Perl and Python experience is definitely a plus. But I don't know. I would like to apply for this if this wasn't if this wasn't in the UK. I'd apply for this just so I could find all the information out myself, and then feed them the false information. Yeah, they will actually supply training, too. So if you're not terribly familiar with how to find pirated material, they'll tell you, So, which is good. Yeah, they should know better than anybody. One thing that scares me about this is that they're actually giving uh, interns the power to send takedown notices, which I think something should be that's something that should only be uh, done by a legal department or a trained professional. 
because it's giving them the eye to discern what is copyrighted material. Yeah, that that I don't trust, especially when there's a lot of stuff that's up that qualifies for fair use and stuff like that. So I I don't think that in terms of that it should be um, intern stuff and I, and even looking up information about the sites, the owners, and stuff like that. I think that could be a little bit sketchily le- sketchy legally speaking, just because these students aren't going to know all of the laws in regards to um, like wiretapping and stuff that might fall under what they're how they're investigating these sites. Yeah. It's it's something complicated and they're trying to um, scale it out, which is, this is the only way to scale it out, but I mean it's <laughs> uh, it, it's going to be tricky and they're going to, they could probably be causing more problems than uh, doing more good, at least in their eyes. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see if there's any stu- students dumb enough to really sign up for it that are actually interested in fighting against piracy. It's better than working at McDonald's. I mean, it's, that's how much they're paying equivalently. Yeah. I don't know. I'd rather have the respect of everybody online and flip burgers rather than piss everybody off online and and be making that. A... Anyway, on our next story, after our story last week about um, peer-to-peer files, peer-to-peer links, and stuff like that being legal. Now comes a story out of Spain saying that a judge is ordering the blocking of some torrent sites all related to a single um, owner. Right. I I believe, if my memory serves, it's the same owner. Um, But this is different. This is not just a torrent site that's just distributing what it found on the net and just having trackers. Apparently, this uh, torrent owner is also the source and the producer of the pirated material. So he actually had the equipment to make his own copies, and then he was using uh, his sites as a distribution point to put all this online. Yeah, apparently he's been facing legal issues since 2007 when the Spanish police took a couple of his torrent sites offline and then he was acquitted in 2008 which is apparently now going to an appeal and it's just been one big back and forth kind of a thing with the Spanish police and apparently he's still the head of some 16 torrent sites and he's just and he's using them as a as he's and he's supposedly using them as a way to distribute uh, cams of movies that he takes yeah so I've never seen someone, or and and I've never seen like the source of the material be the site owner in in all the the pirated cases that I've seen. Uh, most of them come from the stand of hey, I'm just pointing to uh, existing links, so I'm just linking out. I don't actually host the site, and I'm seeing other ones saying that hey, I I just. Uh, uh, I, I, it was posted by a person of our community. It wasn't us. It's something that our users are doing. This is one where it sounds like he's totally in the wrong, in my personal opinion, that he not only taped it, but he has a whole business around distributing what he uh, creates and sending it over the web. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, if he had, judging by last week's news, had he not been doing this himself, he probably would have been fine. But since he was the one actually doing it, he's in a, in a lot more hot water. But, I don't know, it's one of those things that I can't say that I, I'm like you. I don't see this very often as far as um, the owners of the sites uploading stuff. Usually maybe they'll upload like legal stuff like Linux distros or something like that. But usually you never hear about them doing stuff like this, I mean, essentially once you get outside of the um, scene groups, where that's essentially all all it is, is basically this, then you don't really see much of this stuff happening. That's why they've never really been able to pin anything on the 
pirate bay guys because they're smart enough not to do this. Yeah, he probably would have been free and clear in Spain if he did one or the other. Doing mm-hmm. both is probably is where he's running problems. Yeah, and if he was at least smart enough to upload them to other people's torrent sites instead of his own, mm-hmm. then maybe. But yeah, I, I I'm guessing this guy's a little short on the area when it comes to smarts. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder. He was making apparently a lot of money by hosting ads on on a lot of these sites, um, and he was getting free hosting apparently too because uh, he was even ho- one of the he bartered to exchange advertising for hosting. So I mean, it wasn't costing him anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in his case, I'm sure he's probably making more in terms of money than like the Pirate Bay guys are. The one of the big things around the Pirate Bay case was that. They were supposedly making all these millions of dollars or whatever, when in reality, they basically made enough to keep up with the traffic to for buying new servers and stuff, and they were essentially just breaking even. They were never making a ton of money. But if this guy has other people hosting it, then yeah, he's set to make quite a bit of money off of it. Right. And good. But... Anyway, speaking of piracy, apparently piracy is up in France after the three strikes law. Yeah, thank goodness for the new law. (laughs) Yeah, it does wonders, doesn't it? Yeah. So apparently they were squeezing one end of the water snake and the other one just slittered right out, which is uh, they moved um, some of the traffic away from P2P into a haven of rapid share, and other ways of getting illegal content. Yeah, so basically, whatever traffic decrease that they've seen in um, peer-to-peer traffic, and there has been some, because everybody's going from there to rapid share and online streaming places, which I used to have a place where I used to watch online movies streamed or whatever, but I can't seem to remember what the heck it is, and I'm too lazy to go back through all my bookmarks to figure it out because I've got I don't know how many hundreds of those, but they ended up coming out behind because now there's three percent more piracy than there was to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, I and this could come into this whole thing of um, kind of like a, a velvety rope services where you have to know someone to know someone to give you a password and then you're in. Uh, and then once you're in, you can see all these pirated. I see a total underground that's going to develop, and that's going to make it even more uh, uh, pervasive uh, for pirated content because people will be vetted. Um, mm-hmm. So, so they can try to make it. You know, it's whack-a-mole. They, like, they, they knock one down, another one pops up. And in this case, they knocked one down, and it popped up, and it came up bigger than before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's been pretty much the case with every time they try and shut down a torrent site or whatever, is that it knock it down, half dozen more pop up in its place, and there's more piracy than ever before because you've got all this publicity for all these new sites that have popped up. Right, and this is even before people who started uh, getting takedown notices or, or or warnings or anything from the effect of the new law. So yeah, they haven't even sent those out yet. Yeah, so they have, so they haven't even started, and the, and people have pre, pre, um, uh, preempted them by going ahead and moving on their own. So I, th- I think it's emboldening people, saying, "Okay, well now we know exactly what not to do to get caught. So let's go and do go here in full force instead of going being in this um, ambiguous world of is it legal? Is it not legal? Where is it legal? Now they now the law says." This is exactly how it's illegal, and this is the only thing we're monitoring. So, mm-hmm. it, it it makes it makes. I know if I if someone says, "Oh, you cannot cross the street between five and 6 I'll be crossing it every which way, mm-hmm. skipping, hopping, or whatever, because I know exactly what they're looking for. And the government moves slow, and technology moves fast. So, uh, they call it P 2 P now, but uh, who knows what the next big thing is and uh, well, if it's over Twitter, well, if we start sending things over Twitter, what are they going to do? Twitter's ban Twitter. Yeah, well, it's, it's just going to drive more people to private sites, private torrent sites, or 
whatever, and where it is a case of you have to know somebody to get in. That's that's how I got into the private torrent sites that I'm a part of, with the exception of a couple that have their where they once in a great while, like once a month or whatever, open up registration to new people. Mm-hmm. But for any good private site that's worth anything doesn't open up the registration period. It's all invite only people that you know. And that's why I think the whole Warner Brothers NBC Universal thing is going to be a little bit harder than they expect in terms of penetrating these private torrent sites. Yeah. If if I, you know, not that I was would do this, but if I had a private torrent site or a private sharing site, I would require any new uh, joiner to share something that's not already on the network. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. which, which would make it so that if, let's say, Warner Brothers uh, came on the network, uh, they would have to share some of their content. And so they would be just as guilty as anyone else that is in, on the network. Yeah, different private sites have um, different rules and stuff. But like my primary private site that I use, who, whose name I won't mention, um, with them, it's a lar- it's largely a case of whoever's sending you the invite is really sticking their neck out because they're vouching for you. They have to donate so many of their, um, so much of their share ratio or their uploaded credits or whatever to say, hey, this guy is a cool guy. He'll be okay. He'll share. He's not a member of the RIAA or MPAA or whatever. So and and if I was say to be found out that I was a member of those, the person that had invited me would end up banned from the site as well. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, different sites have different rules, but that that's how a lot of them work. But speaking of piracy, apparently there's a bunch of World War II veterans that are pirates because they were out singing war songs in Russia. Yeah, how dare they? How dare they? Yeah, I, I was kind of surprised when I saw this. Apparently there's some great big controversy in Russia because I guess a bunch of World War II veterans got together for some kind of a benefit concert and were singing songs that they used to sing in World War II to kind of keep up morale and stuff. And whatever royalty agency that there is in Russia was basically saying, or I guess it's the Russian Authors Society saying, you can't do that. That's a public performance. We deserve yep. the money that you make from that or a portion of it. Right, and these poor older people are just confused and saying, what? We don't understand. <laughs> yeah, and of all the people you can go after, a bunch of World War II veterans, that's not really a great audience to go after. Right. Well, that's what they fought for. Yeah, Well, apparently the um, Russian parliament has gotten a little irritated about this as well as to where they've called an emergency or a meeting or whatever of the um, royalties, this Russian Author Society or Royalties Commission or whatever it is, to try and get this worked out as fast as possible. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I keep interrupting. Oh, and it looks like they're going to say that as of for just this one particular day and this one particular instance, it was all right to sing those songs or whatever, but it's just going to be for that one day, one time only. Anything past that, they'll have to pay royalties for if they do it again. Yeah, the the anniversary of the celebration of the end of the the war... Um, that want to make it exempt for that one day. But the, the way that this is worded, it seems like they're trying to make it exempt. Well, since they are the war- the royalty enforcers, they can just make it exempt. <laughs> they could just not prosecute on that day and make it formal. So it seems like they're trying to work things out. But uh, in, in, in honesty, they can just not prosecute if they wanted to. Yeah, I think they got enough egg on their face over this one that they're wanting to try and find a way to back down. But I don't think they... I think the reason that they're doing this instead of actually saying, okay, we're not going to prosecute this, is the fact that if they don't prosecute this and there's nothing to say why they didn't, then that's going to make their case weaker if they decide to prosecute something similar in the future. True. I mean, 
if they make an exception for this group, then people say, well, we use it similarly in the same way like they did, and they got an exception, so thus we should be exempted. So they could make their own statute, even though it's not uh, defended in, 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 uh, in the court. But uh, once again, I don't know Russian law, so they could be making a president, even though they're not, uh, have, even though they don't defend it in court. So uh, it's a sticky situation, but it's the same all around the world, all going against copyright. Yeah, I need to look a little bit more into Russian copyright laws and stuff because they seem to be a little bit different there. Because of course that's where the all of MP3.com was based for all those years, and I think, yeah. assuming they're still around, I believe that's where they're based and everything. As to where that was a big area of contention for na- for international agreements was all of MP3.com and their um, copyright laws and stuff like that. So I, that, that's something I definitely need to look into a little bit more. But speaking of looking into stuff, apparently Congress is looking into the Wiretap Act over the whole school laptop spying issue that happened in Pennsylvania. Yeah, this is really, really blown up. Uh, it's got the attention of Congress because it, current law does not really cover what the school district did because it uh, talks about uh, you know listening to audio, which this was just video. There is no audio uh, over it. So they're in this zone of where they actually didn't do anything technically, legally wrong, um, at least not criminally. I mean, of course, they're being sued over it. Um, yeah, and so in terms of the Wiretap Act, they didn't do anything. But um, for other stuff, I'm sure there's other privacy laws and stuff that's right. broken. It's just as far as the Wiretap Act goes, they can't be charged with that. And if they were to be charged, it, had there been a provision that, um, the Wiretap Act not been so outdated and actually covered this stuff, um, it would have been, I believe it's a Class 3 felony for doing something like this. Right. And just to recap, so um, there's a student who is at home, um, and uh, one of the teachers remotely uh, turned on the camera on the laptop that was given to him by the school uh, and observed him doing something that the teacher thought was either illegal or inappropriate or wrong. And um, the student got pulled in, and they were told, hey, I saw what you did, and they actually got reprimanded or detention or suspension because of it. Um, and through that, uh, the student and the, the parent found out that uh, the way that uh, the teacher found out about it was through the webcam, which they did not know that um, they, were, um, they had some sort of anti-theft device on it, which allowed them to turn it on remotely and few students. And only in that case was it built in. Um, so it was used inappropriately. Yeah, there's a number of companies that use this on like corporate laptops to do stuff like this for finding laptops that have been stolen and stuff. But in this case, they had no reason to believe that they were stolen or anything. And ever since this broke, from my understanding, is a lot of the students have gone and put post-it notes over the webcams both at this school and pretty much all over the country and I, I know of a number of people that do that anyway just in case if say a hacker got into your computer wanted to turn on the webcam or whatever the one thing that apparently there's no real way around is the microphone you can't put a post-it note over a microphone and have it do much of any good if you want to do anything about making sure people can't listen to you, they, you pretty much have to snip the wires or whatever to the microphone. Mm-hmm. And that's or, certainly against any user policies of, like, school laptops or whatever. Yeah, disable the driver or do something. But still, mm-hmm. I mean, there's always ways around that software-wise. Um, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. But, yeah, the, they're a Senate Judiciary subcommittee for crime and drugs I guess is looking into this seeing if they can amend the wiretap act to make it a little bit more current and ban some stuff like this so good for congress they're actually doing something decent for a change right but I also um, think it's kind of it's kind of funny that the EFF lawyer uh, called um, 
Caldas says, he said that it was serotypus video surveillance um, has become a pervasive threat. I didn't think this was very pervasive, but uh, <laughs> anyway, that, I, I digress. But I think that's a little, uh, little grandstanding. Yeah, well, I know there's some viruses and stuff that basically allow the um, creators of the virus and stuff to do um, actions like this. So I would, I'm guessing it's probably a little bit more pervasive than most people think. Mm-hmm. Right, but uh, still, it's like seriously though, percentage-wise, it's it's got to be minuscule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's. Not all that much, but speaking of teens and what they do online, apparently teen bloggers aren't engaging much in the way of risky behavior on their blogs, according to a new study. So this was uh, the monitoring of 100 teen bloggers, and from the way it was written, it was without those bloggers' consent necessarily. Apparently, uh, this is just on a on a, uh, Zagna.com, which is, a, I guess, a blogging location. Yeah, I, I I know in the past I've heard of Zanga.com, but I don't think it was somewhere that I had ever actually been. Yeah, and so it's a study over I think a year, uh, or over two years, um, and they're just saying that. Kids really don't give up too much information, personal information, or, or grandstanding, or or talking about bad behavior. But he, here is some of my, um, you know, here 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 are my uh, things about the study that bother me a little bit. One, it's only a hundred students, so very very small sample size. Yeah, that that's what kind of irritated me too. They needed a bigger sample size. Right, and two, um, this has been extrapolated out to say that teens don't do this online. Um, mm. But but the difference is these are bloggers. I put bloggers at a different class than teens on the web because I think uh, bloggers are more educated because they write towards an audience. Um, people or teens in general, especially when you talk about Facebook and Twitter and all that other stuff, um, they, wa- they think some of that communication is one on one, and thus they are freer than a person who believes that they're talking one to many. Even though they are talking one to many, um, the way they, uh, the way they, um, the way that their voices or the way that their, their tone is is more one to one. Yeah, I was to an extent I was kind of surprised by this, but it could be just because of the sample size and. I and it could be where it came from. Like I said, I don't really don't know anything about Zanga, but I, the percentages that they talked about apparently, a uh, I believe it's sixty-five percent of the teen bloggers talked about playing their posts were talked about playing video games. Forty-five percent were posts related to TV. Forty percent about doing homework. Thirty-eight um, percent about going to lessons like music or dance or martial arts lessons, 29% about browsing the internet, 22% about faith-based activities, and I believe it was a whole 1% that talked about sex. Right, and since we're talking about 100 people, that's one person talking about sex. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to see them do a survey of Twitter for stuff like this. Yeah, exactly. Well, they said that um, they would like to do it on Facebook, but since this is what makes me think that it was done without the consent of the the students, they said it's harder to gain anonymous access to people's Facebook feeds. Yeah, I don't know. I I would think you'd still probably be able to glean much of the same information, at least that you got from this study, from something like Twitter, where it's a whole lot more open and there's not very many people that have their pages set to private. True, and probably you can also uh, be able to access this by making a Facebook fan page and having people join. Yeah, I, I saw something, maybe it was something you, I think it was actually I saw you become a fan of something earlier about <laughs> uh, not liking people that promote their fan pages or whatever. Yes, I just became a fan of that. <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, feel free to fan up Global Geek News on Facebook. Uh, the link is in the show notes. 
Well, it's not just people promoting their Facebook fan pages. It's people who continuously promote their Facebook fan page. Like you get, mm-hmm. you get an invite or three or four invites in one week. Yeah. Or yeah, there's some sort of promoter, like a club promoter or something, and every time they have a party or they're doing some event, they send you an invite for it. I mean, it's it's one of those relentless things where um, just because you're friends with someone, they feel that they they, ha- they can inundate you with invites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those get really annoying real fast. Speaking of which, if anybody happens to have much in the way of experience of getting the whole Facebook fan page fan box thing on a WordPress site or whatever, please let me know. I've been trying to figure out how to get that on the Global Geek News page for a couple of weeks now, and I and for the life of me, I can't figure out how to do it with the theme that we use, which is the uh, LightWord 1.9.9 theme. So if anybody happens to have any experience with that, please contact me, Twitter, email, whatever. Uh, I'll pimp those at the end of the show. But anyway, speaking of uh, education of online behavior, apparently there's still a lot of idiots out there that are intentionally opening and even forwarding spam. Yes, these are the people who uh, make it attractive for people to keep sending out spam because they are effective. People keep clicking on them and people will continue to click on them. and people will continue to send spam as long as they get hits. Some people just, they said they, they want to open it to see what it says. They want to open it to uh, to write an angry letter saying, stop sending me this. But it's a, an impression is an impression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the numbers on this really amaze me. They said half of, America, of people in North America and Western Europe have admitted to opening spam. 46% of those said they did so intentionally. A quarter of those said that they claimed to do so in order to unsubscribe or complain to the sender. And a full 15% said that they opened up the spam because they were interested in the products, Mm -hmm. which I'm guessing that means there's a lot of guys out there looking for Viagra. Right. And apparently 18% wanted to see what would happen, and 4% forwarded the email to their friends. Right. And it's not the older people who are doing this. It's it's the younger folks that keep doing this. Yeah, apparently men 35 and younger are the most likely to engage in this risky email behavior. Yeah, man, you have to have protected email. <laughs> yeah, and the numbers that really shock me, I'll just read the paragraph straight as it is. All this despite the fact that many internet users, 44, 44% consider themselves somewhat experienced in the ways of online of security online, while another 20% think of themselves as an expert, yep. ne- nearly all were aware that the existence of the existence of bots and botnets, but two-thirds said that they felt they weren't likely to get infected. Fewer than half of those uh, of half of those surveyed said they were responsible for protecting themselves from viruses and spam. <laughs> that that's just shocking. Yeah. All all you have to do is uh, depending on what kind of especially if you're using webmail, um, if you load the image, they get a ping back saying it's a good address. And uh, not only is it a good address, that your address is one that opens spam. And then you're just multiplying the problem because they know, one, it's a good address, and you're even worth more because they know you open it. So um, people, please just don't open spam. Just delete it. Yeah, the best thing to do is... Market as spam or report it as spam to Google or Yahoo or Hotmail or whoever your provider is, and then go through and delete everything in your spam folder. Mm-hmm. Also, make sure to make sure that or make sure that there's no um, important stuff that accidentally gets marked as spam. That happens sometimes, but the best thing to do is mark it as spam, and so that the, your email providers can um, increase the efficiency of their uh, filters in the future and then just delete it. Otherwise, there's going to be people spamming you from here till eternity. And there still will be anyway, but at least that cuts down on the problem quite a bit. Yes. Please stop. Please. Yeah. Yeah, Unfortunately, there's not a way of dealing with spam like there is um, junk snail mail. I found that to deal with junk snail mail, 
what you do is you take everything that they send you, including the envelope that they send it to you in, and stuff it into that uh, self-paid on that pre the postage prepaid envelope that they send you, and send it all back to them. The mail immediately stops when you do that. Yep. So if you ever want to stop junk mail from people, and they and they send you the envelopes that have the postage prepaid, do that to them, and I guarantee they'll stop. Yeah, you're just mailing them trash like they're mailing you trash. Yep. Yeah, and from I've heard stories of people like sticking uh, pennies and stuff in there too to add some extra weight, so they end up paying all kinds of extra weight charges <laughs> and stuff like that. So if you really want to screw them, there's that's one idea for you, especially if you got like a, like a jar of pennies or something laying around. Yeah, I remember uh, was it uh, there was a form letter sent to to vote no on some sort of issue. And someone just went with a pen and where it says where it says against and changed it to four and then used it to still send it off to their congressman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's amazing the this, this stuff you'll get. But final story before we hit all three of our links of the week um, or tips of the week or whatever. Apparently 91% of Americans now use cell phones. We've wow. officially reached saturation. I, I, I had not believed that. I could not believe it was that high because um, that was all would imply that they have coverage too. So, um, so uh, that also shows that most of the United States is blanketed, blanketed with coverage. So that probably is close to full saturation if we're talking about number of Americans who can can get a wireless signal. Most likely, most likely, most of them do have a cell phone. Yeah, apparently these numbers came out as, I guess these are the, semi, the semi-annual U.S. wireless industry survey, which apparently came out at CTIA last week. I guess it was last week out in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, basically saying that there are now 285 million Americans that are mobile subscribers, which is 91% of the total population, which, and that's up 15 million over the same time last year, and the, gro- and the growth is slowing because of market saturation. Yet they're really seeing things take off in terms of the um, data plans, mm-hmm. especially now that more people are using smartphones. Right, but the the highest consumer of data right now are still laptop uh, 3G devices. Um, and they're also saying that the U.S., speaking of 3G, the U.S. has uh, the most 3G-capable uh, devices in the world or any other country. Yeah, and the number that really surprised me is that for as much as everybody complains, oh, my battery doesn't last most of the way through the day, I can't talk on it very long, apparently on average, most people only use about 21 minutes per day on their cell phone. Yeah, that's definitely, like, so. that, that average is definitely something that's bigger than what I use, so someone else is talking a lot to pick, pick, pick up my slack of my 20 minutes. I probably spend maybe 10 minutes, if that much, a day on my cell phone. That's what I try to limit myself to is 10 minutes a day. So that way I don't have to worry too much about hitting my 450 minute a month cap. Mm-hmm. Or, well, not necessarily cap. I guess they don't stop me at that point. But So that way the phone bill doesn't get outrageous. And if I ever have times when... I'm when I know I'm going to be on long phone conversations or whatever. I use Skype because I pay what three bucks a month for Skype or whatever, to, so I can make Skype out calls, and that way I don't have to worry about going over my minutes or anything like that. Skype is a great um, addition to my mobile phone usage. All right, and the good thing is that with saturation, we're starting to see more jockeying for. For subscribers, uh, I, I I saw recently that Sprint has that new plan where it's seventy bucks for everything, unlimited everything, uh, mm-hmm. and and I think that's the first shot across the bow because I think they started the ninety nine dollar plan and now they're down to sixty nine dollars, um, so hopefully that'll drive down the cost of data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've got a feeling that it's going to be Cricket that's actually the one going to be driving down the cost of data because with their um, 3G modems, and I think even, I don't know if they ha- have them yet or if they're about to get them, 
the MiFi cards, I believe their charges are only like forty bucks a month when everybody else is charging sixty bucks a month. Yeah, with no contract too. Yeah, yeah, it's no contract or anything. So I've been looking real closely at getting one of the cards, especially if they get like the Mifi cards or MiFi or whatever you want to call it, for so that way I can have internet access wherever I go. Because anymore in this town, everybody seems to be locking down their Wi-Fi, and usually I'm too lazy to crack their Wi-Fi to get into it if I need to get internet access. I just use my phone and Tether, so uh, that's good enough for me. Yeah, I've never been able to do that. I, I got this one application. I never did pay for it. I got the demo version that was supposed to be good for X number of bytes or X number of days, whichever happened to come first. But I could never seem to get it to work with my laptops or whatever. I think there was one time I got it to transfer a couple of bytes of data after that. Never worked again after that. So I've never been able to to try out tethering to see what it feels like. Well, that's the good thing, I guess, as many people knock Windows Mobile. Love mm-hmm. having it built in. Yeah. Hopefully I can get a phone that has it built in next time. I don't know. I, my contract's due in July. I'm debating what I want to go with. I'm kind of thinking whole off and see if there's going to be any uh, Windows Phone 7 Series devices on Nextel, but have to just wait and see, I guess. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that would be all of our stories, and we are about out of time. We've got about four minutes left in the show, so hurry up and run right through the tips of the week, week the links of the week, whatever. First one is how to access the BBC iPlayer outside of the UK. I've heard, I don't know how many people say just how good the BBC iPlayer is compared to Hulu or any other um video distribution portal and unless you're in the UK you don't get to experience it but apparently there's a way through some proxies and stuff that's posted here in the article with um, screenshots and everything for how to get it running even if you aren't in the UK second link is how to set up dual monitors this is actually something that I'm looking into doing myself I'm right now I'm in the process of trying to find a new desk that kind of suits my needs because the desk that I have now won't, I don't have the room to set up dual monitors. Actually, I want to take advantage of iFinity and have three monitors up. But if you're if you're looking into getting dual monitors, you've never been real sure. Okay, what are the benefits? How do I do it? Uh, there's this link in the show notes from Mahalo's how-to section on how to set up dual monitors. I'm sure you'll find that very useful. And the final link is all of the videos from the sessions at Mix 2010. This is the conference that I attended out in Vegas week before last. So if you didn't get to go and you're interested in some of the sessions, anything from an introduction to Windows Phone 7 series to um, creating games and stuff for the phone and stuff for best practices for HTML5, all kinds of stuff, Uh, in-depth look at Internet Explorer 9, you name it. Check out the link in the show notes. There's got they've got all kinds of different video formats. Window um, WMV, a high definition WMV MP4. You can get the slides from the presentations, stuff like that. So feel free to check those out. There's hours and hours of content there that I need. To, there's a lot of sessions that I missed that I plan on going back and checking them out myself. But anyway, that would be everything for this week. Don't forget to check out the show notes at globalgeeknews.com. Don't forget to check out the blog, globalgeeknews.com slash blog. And I will be getting up the other posts from my time at Microsoft this week. And I've got some other post ideas, so keep an eye out on that. One thing I want to get to before we close and before we shout out the Twitters and stuff like that, Numbers are still down on the show. I'm not happy about this. I am doing a little bit of a major reorganiz- reorganization of the show. You're not I, firing me, are you? No. Your okay. job is safe. Okay, good. But I, I've got a whole list of, I think, like 30, 40 ideas that I'm kicking around for changes to the show, how to promote the show, stuff like that. But basically, from now on, 
at this point, I can say for certain that we're going to be seeing a lot more guests. Hopefully, the episodes where it's just going to be the two of us are going to be the rarity. So hopefully we're going to see a lot more guests. I'm kicking around the idea of having basically like a 10-15 minute interview tacked on to the end of each show. Um, basically maybe doing some tech guy style help. Um, I have, I'm thinking about bringing back the Global Geek News forums. I've got all kinds of other ideas for ways to for ways to change the show, maybe doing some live streaming of the recording, all kinds of stuff. So if you're if you have any suggestions for what you'd like to see on the show, this week would be the week to let me know. Not all of the changes that I am looking to implement are going to happen within the next week. They may take a week, they may take two weeks, they may take a month. I don't know, but if you have something in particular that you'd like to see happen on the show or whatever, let me know, and I will see what I can get worked in. And how you can let me know, you can either stick it in the comments at globalgeeknews.com for the show, you can email me, pcnerd37 at globalgeeknews.com, or you can send me a tweet I am at PCNerd37, or I am at Global Geek News. That's probably the better one for um, Global Geek News-related stuff. And you can even pass them on to Wesley, who's at Wesley83, and then he can pass them on to me. Yes. But anyway, that is our show for this week, unless you have anything else you'd like to add. Uh, no, we can also use the... Uh, that was just a suggestion. We can use the end of the show to smite our enemies, too. I mean... Yeah, that's an interesting idea, too. I've been thinking about even putting some music at the end of the show. That's another one of my ideas that I've been kicking around. So, for those of you that are looking forward or are looking for some changes in the show, suggest them. Otherwise, hang on, because the show is going for, some ma- going for a ride. We're going to start with some major changes. But anyway, we will see you guys next week. Later. Later. <laughs>